One of the things that I enjoy so much is getting to know brethren in different places. And I think it's a wonderful experience that I had never been to this congregation before today, and yet I walked in this door and I felt comfortable to be with those of like precious faith. Thank you so much for having Pam and I with you today. I appreciate uh, David, his good wife, and the work they do. I appreciate uh, your good elders for showing a vote of confidence in my soundness by inviting me to be with you today. Thank you for the kind things that you've had to say. And my, what a meal that was. Uh, I think a preacher's theme song on occasions like this ought to be plop, plop, fizz, fizz, oh, what a relief it is. But uh, the meal was simply outstanding. We thank you for your hospitality toward us. And Pam and I want to return your hospitality. Anytime you in Sparta, Tennessee, you visit our home, we'll cook anything you want to eat. Just bring it with you. Okay? One of these days when I retire, I plan on doing quite a bit of writing. I hope to. And one of the books that I'm going to write, I hope, is going to be a humorous book. Uh, I played some professional baseball, and, and then when my kids were in college, I did some umpiring, and even some on a professional level. But uh, I remember when I first started out, I had a little boy, a little special ed boy. I was doing little league, and he knew that I was the preacher, but I was the umpire, and he didn't know what to call me. So he called me Brother Ump. And I'm going to write a book one of these days. On my half of it's going to be my humorous experiences umpiring, and the other half on my humorous experiences preaching. So it's going to be about Brother Ump. I want to tell you about the best call I ever made um, umpiring, most unique call I ever made. I was in uh, Dixon, Tennessee. I was calling a national. ISA softball tournament for men. We had 52 teams playing on three fields. We started on Thursday night. I usually did four games on Thursday night, four games on Friday night. I did as many as 13 games on Saturday. Uh, somewhere around 1 or 2 o'clock on Sunday morning, I would leave and go home, and then they'd finish up the tournament in the wee hours of Monday morning. But we had something unusual happen. When we got to Dixon... They had failed to cut the outfield grass for three weeks. The outfield grass was that deep. Well, I was the chief umpire over the whole crew, and so they came to me complaining and fussing, and I said, listen, we can't wait for them to cut the grass. We've got to play ball. You know, We've got to get all these games in on these three fields, and so just go out there. It's the same for both teams. Just go out there and play. You know, don't break a leg. Don't get snake bite. Go play ball. Well, the first game, we didn't have any problem at all. I was behind the plate, and we didn't have any problem at all. Second game, I was on bases, called in the bases. There was a runner on first base. A guy hit the ball on the ground into the high grass in the left field. The runner at first tried to go all the way to third. He should have stopped at second, but he tried to stretch it to third. The guy in left field barehanded the ball in the tall grass, made a snap throw to third base, and the third baseman put down a snap tag, and I mean, it was just one little, 
bang-bang plays like that. And I called the guy out. He jumped up and started kicking dirt, which is not unusual. But then he pointed at the glove and he said, it's not the ball, it's not the ball. And I made the third baseman open his glove and it was a baby rabbit. So I called him out by hair. Isn't it good that we can laugh together and we can cry together? This afternoon, I want you to think about the fact that somebody said it well, that God planned and man perverts. During our lifetimes, especially the last 40, 50 years, those of us who are older, we have, we have witnessed a social earthquake going on in America, haven't we? And just like a physical earthquake, that social earthquake has an epicenter. And the epicenter of this social earthquake going on in America is the breakdown of our homes. And I think you realize that as I do. Psalm 11 and verse 3 raises the question that we all have been thinking. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, this afternoon, I want to speak on the subject of male spiritual leadership. I'm going to pose three questions. The first question is, why is male spiritual leadership important? Well, I'll give you two reasons. First of all, male spiritual leadership is important because... God made it important. When you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3, you will find the divine order of things. God, referring to the Father, Christ, man, and woman. When you look at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23, it says, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ also is the head of the church and he's the Savior of the church. When you look at Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4, it says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. And so male spiritual leadership in our homes is so vital because God made it that way. I want to suggest another thing. Male spiritual leadership is so important in our homes because we draw strength from it. We need godly husbands and godly fathers to lead our homes. I think of the statement in 1 Kings 2 and verse 2 where David just before his death and his dying declaration to his son Solomon said, Be strong therefore. And prove yourself a man. And that is my admonition to you brothers this evening. And you sisters, help them be that. Be strong therefore. And prove yourself a man. And so male spiritual leadership is important, number one, because God made it so. And number two, because we can draw such tremendous strength from it. Second question, 
What can I do as a Christian man to strengthen my wife? I'll tell you four things. Number one, I can be her head. Ephesians 5.23, the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ also is the head of the church. Now there are two extremes when it comes to male headship in the home. One of those extremes is abandonment. By that I mean, just to be blunt, when men do not wear the pants in their family. When the man is not the husband of the wife. When the father is not the leader in his home. Haven't you heard and joked about henpecked husbands? You know, she says cabbage and he heads. She says frog and he jumps. And she says jump and he says how high. There was an interesting survey done a number of years ago in a leading women's magazine in this country. It posed two questions. The first question was, has male spiritual leadership declined in this country? 71% of the women across America said, yes, male spiritual leadership has declined. Or male leadership in the home has declined. That was actually the leading question. They were headed to the second question. Is it good that the male dominant role has declined in America? Well, the Libus did not get the response that they anticipated. 79% of of women across America said no. It is not good that the male leadership role has declined in our homes. And folks, it has. We need to realize that. It's ironic. That in all the years I've been preaching and doing a great deal of family counseling, that I have most heard most women who criticize their husband, Christian women who criticize their husband, they did not criticize him because he was the head of their home, but they lamented the fact that he wasn't the head of their home. Fellas, let me tell you something. If your wife is a Christian woman, she's got her head screwed on right, she wants you. To be the head of your home. God wants you to be Joshua. God wants you to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua 24 and verse 15. Now the other extreme of male headship is when the husband acts like a tyrant. You know the the old caveman mentality, club over his shoulder, dragging her by the hair of the head into the kitchen. That's it. The best way I know to describe it, you remember the Dukes of Hazard? Remember Boss Hog? That's what we're talking about. He's acting like Boss Hog. Well, the Bible teaches male headship, but the Bible teaches that it is qualified. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Colossians 3.19, husbands love your wives and do not be bitter against them. Sometimes when I perform a wedding, I will slip a little prayer into the coat 
of the groom. And I'll say now, read that later on. Just to give you a snippet of what that prayer says, the key point is, may there never be a moment in my life when she regrets that she became my wife. And so, one thing that you can do, brothers, to help your wife go to heaven is to be the head of your home, the spiritual leader of your home. Number two, the second thing that you can do is you can love her. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. But if you have your Bible open in Ephesians 5, if you don't open it, in Ephesians 5, I want you to notice that in verse 25, verse 28, verse 33, he talks about the husband loving the wife. And we might pose this question. How am I to love her? Well, look at verse 25. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for her. What's your love for her to be? It's to be a sacrificial love. Now, look at verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Your love for your body is a caring love. You are to have a sacrificial love for her. You are to have a caring love for her. And then when you look at verse 33. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his wife as himself. You love yourself constantly. So your love for her is to be sacrificial. And your love for her is to be caring. And your love for her is to be constant. Brothers, I'm going to tell you something. There are a lot of wives who are starving to death for their own husband's love. And some of the best advice I can give to us fellas is, we need to go home and we need to love our wives. You need to verbalize your love for her. You need to tell her that you love her earth-shattering comment here. You probably don't know this, but men and women are different. I'm not talking about plumbing. I'm talking about wiring. Men are fact-based creatures, but women are emotion-based creatures. She needs to hear it. Sometimes my wife will ask me, do you love me? And that red flag goes up. I'm trained. I know better than that. But that says to me, you need to be telling her more often. Hear the story about Ma and Pa. Ma and Pa have been married 60 years. They're driving down the, the road in a pickup truck. And Ma looks over at Pa and says, Pa, do you love me? He said, I told you 60 years ago I loved you. If I ever changed my mind, I'll let you know. Well, that may work for Pa, but that don't work for Ma. It just doesn't work for her. Demonstrate your love, too. I think that sometimes we fellows are following the gospel according to Rambo instead of the gospel according to Jesus. We need to get rid of this macho mentality that we cannot verbalize love. Did any of you ever see the Faulkner Rakeen Marriage Enrichment Seminar films? Any of you ever see those? They, they were out a number of years ago. They're kind of dated now. But, but Dr. Rakeen, Carl Rakeen was talking about they were up in Idaho, potato country, and 
and they were putting on one of these seminars, and one night he really labored the point that you need to verbalize your love for your wife, you need to demonstrate your love for your wife, you need to do little things for her. And he said the next night, there's a wife came in, said, oh, Dr. Burkeen, Dr. Burkeen, just let me tell you what my husband did. He had never done it before. But last night after your session, when I went to go to bed, he had written a poem and put it on my pillow. Now, we're talking about a guy that's an Idaho potato farmer, okay? And this is what it said. My love for thee doth flow like water down a tater row. <laughs> I want you to write this down, men and women both. S-S-G. S-S-G. One of the most important things in your marriage. S-S-G. Spontaneous, sensitive gift. Keep the romance in your marriage. Do little things for each other that says, Honey, I'm thinking about you and you're special to me. I was out one day in a pickup truck with my bestest buddy, Terry Hendricks, and we're driving down the road. It's the spring of the year. The buttercups were up. We passed across this little creek, and he pulled up the truck, and he said, I'll be right back. He got out of the truck, reached over in the back of the truck, and got an old rusty can, he went down and dips up some water out of the creek and picked a bunch of those buttercups and put them in the can. And when he started to get back in the truck, well, I started batting my eyes and said, thank you, thank you. And he said, just shut up. <laughs> he took those home to his wife. At the next service, I asked her, I want to ask you a question. Would you have rather had that bunch of buttercups and that rusty can or a dozen roses on the anniversary. Girls, you know what he said, don't you? She'd rather have that rusty can and those buttercups because it was a spontaneous, sensitive gift. Just do little things for each other that says, I love you. And fellows, we're the ones that particularly have to work on that point. Let me mention the third thing. What can I do to strengthen my wife as a Christian? Number three, I can honor her. Turn with me in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. The first six verses, Peter talks to Christian wives. And he very practically talks about how they can win their husband to Christ by their life, by their behavior. But then he turns to husbands in verse 7. He says, Husbands, likewise dwell with them in understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together the grace of God that your prayers may not be hindered. Boy, there's a lot in that verse. Fellas, did you know that the way you treat your wife would actually hinder your prayers before God? I'll mention at the end of the service that we're supposed to be heirs together of the grace of God. But the point I want to emphasize right here is giving honor to the wife. The word honor is from the Greek word teme, which means to prize, to value, and to show esteem for. I dare say there are things in your home that you prize, that you value, that you show esteem for. That widow who when her husband 
was killed in service to our country, was presented that flag by her, by her country on behalf of a grateful nation. And when she holds that flag, it's precious. Maybe it's a flower that's pressed in a Bible from a grave of a parent. You have things that are precious to you. You value them. You prize them. Fellas, that's what you're supposed to do to her. She's precious. You know that. The story in Proverbs chapter 31, or the teaching in Proverbs 31, that starts out about the virtuous woman. What does it say? A virtuous woman who can find for her worth is far above rubies. Precious. She's precious. Treat her that way. Now, I've got to tell you this story. The first place that I preached, you know, that first congregation, there's always, always something special about those folks because they endured a lot <laughs> with you. But several years later, I'd gone back for a meeting or two, and, and I was coming back there in a meeting in, in, in West Kentucky, and, and they asked me to do a whole series on the family. And so one night, I really labored this idea of husband-wife relationship and, and verbalizing your love and demonstrating your love and, and building that bond even greater. Don't fall out of love. Stay in love. The next night, a lady came in to me, kind of like Dr. Burkeen, I guess. And she came in to me. She said, let me tell you, and she called her husband and what he did last night. Now, her husband is a, is a kind of socially withdrawn type of guy. He's very quiet. He was a radio announcer, and when he's behind that microphone, he was a dynamite. But in public, very reserved. They didn't have any children. She said, last night after your lesson, we went home. She said, he was sitting at the kitchen table reading the paper. I had my back turned and doing some final dishes. And all of a sudden, in the quiet, he said, hello, precious. He never did that before. She said, it took my breath away. Cold chills ran up and down me. My knees got weak. She took, I said, I took a deep breath and slowly turned. And he was talking to the cat. <laughs> Don't tell the cat she's precious. Prize her. How, how can I honor her? I think a lot of that's just common sense, isn't it, guys? First of all, being understanding and considerate of her. Don't grunt. <laughs> Whatever. Show common courtesy. Open the door for her. We went to try out our first work. We'd only been married a couple of months. And it's, we got out. We got there early and we're sitting in the parking lot. And the deacon lived down the street that soon become our neighbor. He came walking up the street. And as he started walking up, I got out of the car and I walked around to the other side of the car and I opened the door for Pamela. And as I went walking up there, Brother Ferguson looked at me and he said, you won't be doing that long. Well, I let him know that I would too. It wasn't too long after that. We had stair steps, this tall and this tall and a baby in arm. And she's got a diaper bag on her shoulder and I'm looking back and saying, come on, hon. And I thought about what Brother Ferguson said. Common sense. Make her a part of your life. 
How many times do the two of you sit in the living room and you're a million miles away because somebody's all engrossing the TV? I do it. You know, a lady's trying to talk to her husband. Yeah, uh-huh. She said, that 10-foot alligator fix and bite your leg off. Yeah, uh-huh. You know, she knows he's not listening. We need to listen. Compliment her. Now that's Bible. Proverbs 31, verse 28. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. You realize, guys, that most wives are starving for their own husband's affection? Let me tell you something. If you will treat her like a queen, it'll pay rich dividends. She'll treat you like a king. Let me mention one more point. How can I help my wife? I can provide for her. 1 Timothy 5 8 is an interesting passage. Actually, the immediate context is in caring for aged parents. But I think it certainly applies across the board as far as family is concerned. It says, if anyone does not provide for his own, especially those of his own house or family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel or an unbeliever. You and I say, well, what could be possibly be worse than an infidel or an unbeliever? A man who won't provide for his own. You can't convince me that's not a serious problem in America this afternoon. You know it is. My granddaddy was just an old simple dirt farmer in Middle Tennessee, but he had a phrase that he used about men that wouldn't physically provide for their family. He said, they're trash, it won't burn. It's important that you provide for your family. But I got to footnote that. We need to qualify that and realize that that's not the whole ball game. Luke 12, 15 says, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. And, if you allow me to misapply Matthew 16 and 26, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the world and lose his own family? You need to provide for her financially. But she really needs you to provide for her emotionally. And you need to support her spiritually. Share your life with your wife. Be companions. Heirs together of the grace of God. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. I hope those are some thoughts that help. Now here's our last question. We've been talking about what I can do as a man to strengthen my wife. What can I do as a man to strengthen my children? Well, I know there's some things that I cannot do. I know that I cannot be like Lot and I cannot pitch my tent towards Sodom. Genesis chapter 13 and verse 12. See, Lot made a purely materialistic decision. He looked at those well-watered plains and said, man, we can make a lot more money there. We can get more stuff if we move there. If you look in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, 
you'll find that his righteous soul was vexed by the conduct of the wicked. And how about his family? He left daughters in Sodom when it was destroyed. His wife looked back and turned to a pillar of salt. He got his other daughters out of Sodom, but he didn't get Sodom out of them. They committed incest with their own fathers. I can't be like Lot. I certainly can't be like Eli. You look at 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 13 and it says that Eli knew the iniquity of his sons. He knew that they made themselves vile. And yet it says he restrained them not. I'm not going to strengthen my children by doing that. By not restraining them. I've witnessed situations where a young man goes out, gets drunk, gets into all kind of mischief, wrecks his vehicle, gets in trouble with the law, and his family completely bails him out and goes and buys him a newer truck. Now, what have they taught him? That actions don't have consequences, right? And that's not accurate. We need to look at hard at some of those things. I know I cannot be like Achan. Joshua chapter 7 you remember Achan taking the accursed thing out of Jericho and it led ultimately to his death and to the death of his whole family. I cannot sin openly before my children with God's approval. What about the fathers of Nehemiah's day? In Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 24, here the Israelites were intermarrying with those nations around them, and it said, and Nehemiah lamented, and the children were speaking the language of Ashdod. Very nice accommodations you put us in last night at the Holiday Inn. Very, very nice. But it broke my heart. Not the first time it's broke my heart. It happens about every time in one of these situations. Where on Sunday morning I get up early and I go down. I usually get up about five and I study something. I go down to get a little breakfast. And I walk down there this morning and that place is running over with little girls about that big. We're going to go play softball all day today without thinking about the Lord. Do you want your children to be athletes or do you want your children to be Christians? I started taking some of our stuff down to the car this morning. And there's an older man got on the elevator with me. He said, you you must be going to church. I said, yes, sir, I am. He said, what kind of church do you preach for? And I said, well, I'm going to be, and I invited him to church here. And he said, well, I'm a member of the church. He said, you know, I guess what I'm doing is wrong. He was there to see his granddaughter play ball. He said, I guess what I'm doing is wrong. I said, let me remove any doubt from your mind. What you're doing is definitely wrong. You're serving the wrong God. Now, I'm not against sports. I played sports. I was All-State, All-American in sports. I played professional ball. That's okay. Two of my daughters played college volleyball. We're very good at it. 
I'm not against sports. Just don't make a God out of it. Don't put things like that in the heart of your children. And later on, you know what's going to happen? I'm on my soapbox now. Y'all hang on. Buckle your seatbelt. You know what's going to happen later on? Those children aren't going to be interested in the church at all. And then they're going to point their finger at the preacher and the elders and the congregation and say, They failed my children. No. No, they didn't. The parent did. I can't be like these daddies. I know what I must do. I know that as a, as a husband and a father, I need to be like Enoch. Genesis chapter 5 verse 24. And I need to walk with God. I know that I need to be like Noah. Genesis 6 verses 9 and following. Noah too walked with God. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He was a just man. He was a righteous man. I need to be like him. I need to be like Abraham. Genesis 18 verse 19. God said, I can, I can tell Abraham what's going on because I know Abraham. I know what kind of father Abraham is. I know that he's going to command his children after him. I know he's going to teach them to be righteous. I need to be like Joshua. I need to be committed to the Lord and upfront about it and public about it and say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I need to be like Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1 verse 6 said that both were righteous and walked in all the commandments of God blameless. I need to be like Joseph. Luke 2 and 52, he brought his son up in a balanced way. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. No, he was not his physical father. But he met that role in his life. And Jesus lived the well-balanced life that he did because he had a mom and daddy that lived well-balanced life as they did. I must train my children. You know the passages. Proverbs 22, 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Ephesians 6, 4 said, Bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Now I point on each of those passages. The word train in Proverbs 22 and verse 6 is from the Hebrew word hanak, which means to initiate, to narrow, and to discipline. And in Ephesians 6 verse 4 he says bring them up. King James says in the nurturing the admonition of the Lord. New King James says the training the admonition of the Lord. He's talking about the two sides of training. He is talking about non-verbal training. And he's talking about verbal training. Both sides. A lot of parents want to do the verbal side. But not the modeling. And the disciplining. And the walking you know what training is? You're seeing the effectiveness of training, and I, I saw this in my kids, and I'm sure you've seen it in your kids, if you, you have kids that are reaching adulthood. One day they say something, and all of a sudden you get this warm glow, 
I mean, the light goes on and you say, they got it. It's theirs now. That's training. And that's what we've got to provide. It takes sacrifice. It takes commitment. It takes discipline. Don't neglect your children. I want to share, I don't want to run out of time here. But if I do, you're probably never going to speak to me again anyway, so that's all right. <laughs> Turn in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 35. I want to show you a really neat story. Jeremiah chapter 35. God's going to teach Jeremiah an object lesson. And he's going to do it with the Rechabites. Chapter 35, verse 1, God comes to Jeremiah, and in verse 2 he says, Now you go down to the house of the Rechabites, watch this, and you give them wine to drink. And so he got the whole house of the Rechabites together. Verse 5, Then I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites bowls full of wine and cups, and I said, Drink wine. Pause, hit the pause button a second. With all the liquor-loving dads today, don't you know it would have been something else? Said, bowls full of wine, said, here, drink! But watch what happens. Verse 6, they said, we will drink no wine. For Jonadad, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying... You shall not drink, you shall drink no wine, you nor your sons forever. The other aspects of that prohibition, but here's the interesting thing about it. They said, God said, Jeremiah, go down there and give those Rechabite bowls of wine. Tell them to drink. They said, we ain't going to touch that stuff. Well, hold on. Well, Jonadad, our forefather, said, don't you drink wine. Folks, Jonadad had been dead for 300 years. That's the lasting impact of a godly father. Now the object lesson, if you go on to read it, was those people get it, but my people aren't getting it. They follow their heritage, but my people aren't following their heritage. You get the idea? That was the object lesson. Man. We need fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers that create a godly heritage. And you may be in that lineage. You may have a great-grandfather, grandfather, father that's God. Maybe you don't. If you don't, then you start the heritage. And you pass it on to those others. It takes... A man. I mean it takes a man to be a Christian husband and a Christian father. And I want to ask you some questions. Am I a Christian? Is Christ the center of my life? One of my favorite passages, Colossians 3, 1-4, it talks about 
have your mind set on things above, your heart set on those things. Verse 4, for Christ who is your life. Oh, I love that. Is Christ the center of your life? Is heaven my real and ultimate goal? As a dad, as a mom, as a husband, as a wife, where am I leading my family? You cannot lead them in a path you are not walking. Well, we're going to wrap it up. And this is the way we're going to wrap it up. Have any of you seen the movie Courageous? Anybody seen that? Well, you ought to. It's about being a Christian father. And it's presented, I know, from a denominational concept in many ways. I don't recommend it. You know, watching a movie like that is kind of like uh, reading a book. You, you eat the meat, or eating fish, you, you eat the meat, you throw out the bones, okay? But there's some pretty good meat in this. And it comes down to the final speech that this guy makes in this movie. And I'm going to read it to you. He's talking about being courageous fathers, husbands. He said, some men will hear this and mock or ignore it. But I will tell you as a father that you are accountable to God for the position of influence he has given you. You can't fall asleep at the wheel only to wake up someday and realize that your job or hobbies have no eternal value, but the souls of your children do. Some men will hear this and agree with it, but have no resolve to live it out. Instead, they will live for themselves and waste the opportunity to leave a godly legacy for the next generation. But there are some men who, regardless of the mistakes we've made in the past, regardless of what our fathers did before us, will give the strength of our arms and the rest of our lives to loving God with all that we are, and to teach our children to do the same. And whenever possible, to love and mentor others who have no fathers in their lives, but who desperately need help and direction. And we are inviting any man whose heart is willing and courageous to join us in this decision. Listen to what he says. In my house, the decision has already been made. You don't have to ask who will guide my family by God's grace. I will. You don't have to ask who will teach my son and daughter to follow Christ because I will. Who will accept the responsibility of providing for and protecting my family? I will. Who will ask God to break the chain of destructive patterns in my family's history? I will. Who will pray and bless my children to boldly pursue whatever God calls them to do? I am their father. I will. I accept this responsibility. And it is my privilege to embrace it. I want the favor of God and his blessing on my home. Any good man does. So where are you men of courage? Where are you fathers who fear the Lord? It's time to rise up and answer the call God has given you and say, I will. I will. I will.
Dad, I'm not picking on you. Husband, I'm not picking on you. We desperately need you to be the spiritual leaders of your home. Our nation needs it. The church needs it. Your family need you to do it. Make the decision to obey the gospel. If you've never become a Christian, repent of your sins. Confess Christ. And then be baptized into his death where his blood will wash away your sins. If you are not faithful, become faithful. We'd love to pray with you right now about that. Won't you come?